0: All right, thank you, John. Um, This is a two-part introduction. Can you hear me okay? Yeah? All right. part, Part one. In which I tell you about, a little bit about what the literary world thinks about Jeffrey Lent. Newsweek declared that you can hear echoes of Faulkner and Cormac McCarthy in Lent's prose. And of course you can. The New York Times Book Review called his first novel in the fall majestic, epic, vital, a necessary piece in the uniquely American mosaic. Booklist called it loamy and visceral and said Lent's writing is deeply introspective, intelligent, and beautifully descriptive. True on all counts. Library Journal described his follow-up, Lost Nation, as a dark and bloody tale about the power of guilt, the tragedy of misapprehension, and the will to survive. It offers a powerful yet compassionate exploration into the human condition. About a, particular, a Peculiar Grace, his forthcoming novel, Publishers Weekly, in a starred pre-publication review, said, Family Fracturing Secrets are at the heart of Lent's luminous third novel, a transcendent story about the healing power of love and art. That was part one. Part two, in which I tell you a little bit about what I think Of Jeffrey Lent. (laughs) (laughs) I I could rewrite this real quick. Um, My personal introduction to Jeffrey had little to do with all the praise he was receiving. I was an unpublished writer awaiting the appearance of my first book when I came across In the Fall. I remember the exact day. Uh, It was in a Borders. I was browsing, picked up Jeffrey's book, and read the jacket info with interest But when I read the actual words of the opening, I was hooked. I knew within a few lines that here was language, poetry, mystery, that I could willingly fall into and get lost in. That's just what I did. And I realized that here was an artist addressing truly fundamental aspects of the American experience. So when I saw that Jeffrey was doing a reading at a small event in Vermont, I happily jumped in my car and drove several hours up to see him. After his reading, I introduced myself, got him to sign his book, and then I slipped McGalley of my first novel. It wasn't out yet, which he graciously uh, accepted, and um, I drove away, wondering, wondering, wondering if he was going to read it. Um, I didn't know what i expect, but I was awful glad to get that book in his hands. I got my answer the next day. He phoned me to tell me he was several chapters into it the next day and liking it. He went on to endorse the book with a blurb, and that's something he's done for me with other books and for many other authors as well. That sort of generosity was completely unexpected. And the more I've learned about writers, the more I've come to understand how unusual it is. But this generosity is part of Jeffrey's character, and being unusual is as natural to him as breathing. Consider that he didn't come up through an MFA program. Instead, he lived and wrote and read, read and wrote and lived, until he'd written himself a debut novel that bore no resemblance to any debut novel I've ever seen. And when it was a huge hit here and in many foreign languages, he didn't mooch New York and hobnob with the literary elite, did some hobnobbing, but instead of going to New York, he um, returned to his native Vermont, bought a farmhouse, got some horses, and converted the barn into an office and carried on with the daily labor of stealing from the fabric of life and weaving those threads into fiction, presenting his work to us. It's quite a gift, and we should be honored and very pleased that he's here spending some time with us. Please join me in welcoming Jeffrey Lynn.
1: So I, I don't get to use this. I have to use this. Is that right? This turned on. This is turned on. This is turned on. <laughs> Ah, okay. I spend most of my time writing, not very much time talking. I spent two and a half hours this afternoon talking nonstop. Um, So I will pause for frequent water breaks. Bear with me. Um, I'm not going to begin by holding forth on any grand concepts of literature. Uh, I think that... um, If we get to a question-and-answer period, that's a much more interesting time to talk about process and how things come into being. Uh, The novel I'm going to be reading from tonight will be out this summer. Um, I'm going to read from the beginning section, the very opening, and then a little later on, um, simply because to read from deeper in the novel would require far more uh, introduction than the actual reading would take. Um, blew it, I, I wanted to start by saying when when I said that I was not gonna hold forth, um, it's a wonderful quote from Margaret Atwood uh, concerning writers and um, she said, wanting to meet a writer is sort of like wanting to meet a duck because you like pate. <laughs> <clears throat> I'm actually going to start tonight with somebody else's work um, because this, this, this book is mentioned by name and it, it, it has a small but significant role in my novel. And I'm going to read two poems from it that are uh, not mentioned by name, but they are lightly discussed in in the book. Um, and I'm also going to use this as a as, as a um, soapbox a little bit t- to introduce to you those of you who don't know an absolutely fabulous poet named Jack Gilbert. Um, Jack is in his early 80s. A couple of years ago, he published his fourth volume of poetry, which scooped just about every award that's worth scooping. He didn't start out in his 60s writing poetry. He was, uh, let's see, his first book of poetry was Voices of Jeopardy, which won the 1962 Yale Younger Poets series. Uh, his second book came several years later. It was called Monolithos. Both of those were nominated for the Pulitzer Prize. This book uh, was published in 1994, The Great Fires. Jack has lived a, for many years he lived on a Greek island um, in deliberate obscurity and of course, uh, tremendous poverty um, by choice. I had the extraordinary opportunity to meet him when this book came out. Uh, He does very, very few public appearances. (coughs) And um, it just so happened, I was living in Nashville, North Carolina at the time, and it was a very fabulous, rare and used bookstore there, whose owner was an old friend of Jack's from uh, a period that he spent in, in San Francisco. Um, and so Jack agreed to come, and I was—it was an invitation-only event because it was a very—it's—you it's, know—it's—it's—it's—it's a, it's a, it's, it's not a big bookstore, um, and it was an absolutely overwhelming experience. I've seen a lot of writers and heard a lot of writers and a lot of poets, um, but Jack Gilbert absolutely shimmers with greatness. Um, So that's my blurb for Jack. And now I'm going to read the two poems um, that are featured in A Peculiar Grace. You know, I've I've just hit this this point in life (laughs) where depending on the, you know, the light and, the level, you have to make this decision if I'm going to read with my glasses on or off. I think we'll try. I think we'll try on tonight. Let's see how it goes. This is called Going Wrong. The fish are dreadful. They are brought up the mountain in the dawn most days, beautiful and alien and cold from night under the sea. The grand rooms fading from their flat eyes. Soft machinery of the dark, the man thinks, washing them. What can you know of my machinery, demands the Lord. Sure, the man says quietly, and cuts into them, laying back the dozen struts, getting to the muck of something terrible. The Lord insists, You are the one who chooses to live this way. I build cities where things are human. I make Tuscany and you go to live with rock and silence. The man washes away the blood and arranges the fish on a big plate, starts the onions in the hot olive oil and puts in peppers. You have lived all year without women. He takes out everything and puts in the fish. No one knows where you are. People forget you. You are vain and stubborn. The man slices tomatoes and lemons, takes out the fish and scrambles eggs. I am not stubborn, he thinks, laying all of it on the table in the courtyard, full of early sun, shadows of swallows flying on the food. Not stubborn, just greedy. This next poem, um, this, this book, uh, many of the poems uh, in it were written uh, for his his second wife, Michiko, who died quite young and unexpectedly. Um, and this, this poem is called Alone. I never thought Michiko would come back after she died. But if she did, I knew it would be as a lady in a long white dress. It is strange that she has returned as somebody's Dalmatian. I meet the man walking her on a leash almost every week. He says good morning, and I stoop down to calm her. He said once that she was never like that with other people. Sometimes she is tethered on their lawn when I go by. If nobody is around, I sit on the grass. When she finally quiets, she puts her head in my lap and we watch each other's eyes as I whisper in her soft ears. She cares nothing about the mystery. She likes it best when I touch her head and tell her small things about my days and our friends. That makes her happy the way it always did. Jack Gilbert. I think I'm just going to read from the beginning, and then before I do the second short piece, sort of explain things a little bit. Um, I'm still just not happy with the. Uh... <clears throat> this is set in um, contemporary Vermont, uh, at least part of the book is. Now I just you know I, I need the glasses. I, can't get around it, <clears throat> you laugh and your time will come. <clears throat> when the vehicle passed through his yard in the middle of the night and continued up the hill and into the woods along the rutted ancient road, you at Pierce barely registered it. Kids out jeeping on an early summer night, a signal start to summer. What he had no way of knowing were the events unfolding that same night 300 miles away, that once revealed would alter forever his life of solitude, a second chance. Now with dew on the new June grass heavy as frost, Yulet was standing in jeans soaked to his calves with his second coffee, just beyond the barns among the apple trees, and even dozen ancients with low slung heavy branches, trunks twisted and thick and dense below the canopy of pink pink hearted white blossoms. The sun was up over the eastern ridge and striking the top of the western ridge. The young leaves of the tree line illuminated more golden than green, glowing. Two weeks to the solstice, 527 when he left the kitchen. Shivering with his wet pants in the morning air, a flannel shirt open over the T-shirt, which would be all he'd want once the sun rose higher. The old barn cat had met him at the porch and followed him across the gravel yard but stopped at the deep grass to avoid the wet, too old to care if there were mice among the apples. A sack of cat food was ripped open in the carriage barn, leaning against hay bales, yellow and moldering, gone to waste except for the warm winter bed they provided the cat. A freestanding brick building was set in the bank that dropped off from the old orchard, his smithy, his hearth, his forge. The drop of the bank sharp enough so the door opened onto stairs that led down eight feet, deep enough so the building had windows and large double doors opening out the north side. He considered walking over and cleaning the clinkers from the cold forge and lighting a fire to bank and hold while he went back to the house for breakfast. There was work enough to be done. He swiped the mug out before him, spewing a mist of cold coffee. He just hadn't decided if it was a day for iron. He had no work week or month or pension or retirement plans. All he had was the work he chose. This approach created problems, but not for him. For a time, he considered having the telephone disconnected, but hadn't knowing this would lead only to more unwanted visits from people who thought the fact they wanted a thing made meant he'd agree to the job. Walter Boynton had provided Hewitt with an answering machine, relieving, if not solving, most problems of communication. Considering the possibilities of his day, he paused. From the ridge top rose a pale, thin stream of wood smoke. And because he knew that ridge... As precisely as each of the gnarled trees he stood amongst, he knew the location of the campfire. And only then remembered the passage the night before. He stood a bit more and then said, shit. He was not interested in rescue, but whoever was up there was obviously stuck. It was a nice place to camp, but it's the rare camper who sets off at midnight. He could go on with his day and wait until whoever it was appeared to ask for help or get it over with now. So far he'd committed to nothing, but once he did, he'd want no disturbance. He'd more than once resorted to hiding in the old stack of hay to avoid incoming interruption. His friends knew where to find him, and he suffered no embarrassment in coming blinking back into the daylight with hay in his hair, but it worked well on those who would bring only irritation. He went to the shed and sat on the drawbar of the tractor to lace his boots. It was a sharp, uncomfortable perch, but it did the job. No need to check the fuel. He knew the old red farmall had at least five or six gallons in her. He wrapped a log chain with a hook on one end and clevis and pin on the other around the drawbar and climbed into the seat thrust the throttle up halfway and pressed the ignition button. The tractor coughed and choked and came alive, and the shed filled with black, then gray exhaust. But you had sat patient until the engine was running smooth before backing from the shed and turning uphill. He took his time, putting along in second gear. He was in no hurry, and it was a pleasant morning, the sun now warming through the flannel on his back and his speed would allow whoever was up there plenty of time to hear him coming. The road was rutted with spring melt and the frost come out of the ground, but easy going a farm lane between the hayfields that Bill Potwin cut and baled each summer and limed and spread manure upon each fall, the latter conditions imposed by Hewitt and held to with an unspoken grudging grump by Bill an irritation manifested by his penchant for holding off doing the job until the last weeks of passable fall weather. Ewood didn't mind, in fact rather enjoyed Potwin's small protest against being made to do what ought to be done anyway. Too many summer homes carved out of old farms where the hay was free had spoiled the farmers just a little bit. had had sympathy, since free hay was free hay, and welcome in an otherwise ungrateful business. But then again, he knew how things should be done as opposed to those who just wanted things to look pretty and place no value on the hay. Hewitt knew of a couple of farmers who actually got paid to hay some of those summer home fields. Into the woods now and he could smell the wood smoke. The road got rougher and he idled down. These were big woods here mostly rock, maple, ash, beech, and hemlocks. He crested the ridge, cool again under the filtering trees, and gradually the road swung northeast as if followed the crest. Back in the woods were stone walls lining what had been the old road, and time to time there would be an opening in the wall, often flanked with upright stone posts, and back behind were the cellar holes and jumbled foundation stones of old farms. He dropped into first as a little tractor worked along. Now he could see fresh tire tracks, slick bare slipping patches, a nasty fresh scrape on a blunt pointed rock anybody who ever drove this road knew to swing wide of, even in the dark. When he came round the bend where he knew from the smoke you would find it, It was shock enough that he braked hard as he killed the ignition and the attractor choked a popping backfire and died. Not the damnedest thing he'd ever seen. Even counting the mystery hunched like a huge stone turtle 20 feet back in the woods, the dry stone chamber with the vaulted low entrance also of stone, one of five such structures ancient and unexplained in the area. But directly before him this morning was a Volkswagen Beetle, hand-painted in swirls and dots and symbols of unlikely origin, in a mixture alarming even to his own unblinkable eye. Graffiti or Aboriginal rock art, some far distant cousin to the hand-painted rainbow ex-school buses and microbuses of his younger years. The bug sat in the road, No list from a flat tire or reek to suggest a split oil pan and blown engine. Just stopped. Off to the side was a small fire and a woman sitting on a rock. She looked at him and then back to the fire. She was not trying to cook anything. She sat on the rock with her knees pulled together and her feet apart, her hands open to the paltry warmth in black jeans and a white t-shirt with black hair cropped badly down her nape and pushed behind her ears. She was studying the fire as if he wasn't there. So had folded his arms on the cracked rubber of the steering wheel and studied the car. Under the paint, it was a nice old bug, early 60s with the windshield split down the middle and the oval rear window. The license plate was unfamiliar, so he squinted and sat full upright. Mississippi. He looked at the girl, the young woman. Sometime in his late 30s, he'd lost the ability to ascribe age to most women between 17 and 30 or so. He stood down from the tractor and went halfway the distance to both curl and car. Here he could see that the rear of the VW was stuffed with belongings, clothing and such it looked like. She was watching him now and he was close enough so he had her pegged mid to late 20s her eyes dark as her hair and wide upon him but within that width there was a brilliant shining distance something untouchable regardless of what he was to do or say he felt something like a shiver not from her cold but from her not from cold but from her eyes as if understanding he could kill her and her gaze would not change her hands still open to the now-dying twig fire. He thought, this is someone who can't even build a decent fire. He considered carefully, and in an offhand gentle voice said, I saw the smoke. It looks to me like you're not where you plan to end up. She did not hesitate, but said, that car is useless. Can you give me a ride? Ignoring his tractor as much as she seemed to be, he said, could be. Where are you headed? Austin. He pondered a moment. Austin? She nodded. He said, Austin, Texas? Oh, never mind, his stupidity too great to bear. Something way off here, but she sure had a pretty voice, deep but dragging sweet over the syllables as if words others took for granted were savored and valued throughout their possible peaks and valleys. He said, what's wrong with the car? And took a cautious pair of steps closer to her. She said, not one thing in the world except where it is and quit. And he could smell her now, the long unwashed body so far past sour as to be nearly sweet. Sweet, that is, if the earth made humans its own. A smelly associated with old men in winter-layered clothes. You said it was worthless. What's worthless? Your car. Do you have a a can of gasoline on that tractor or in your pocket? He smiled. Nope, but it's your lucky day. This old tractor runs on regular gas, not diesel like the new jobs. So there's a tank down to the house. We can fix you up. No, you can't, she said, and stood and stepped away from him. Not toward the car, but toward the stone chamber tucked back in the woods. As she had already determined, as if she had already determined it was a defensive position. Who sent you here anyway? He took a breath and let it out slowly. Well, my name's Hewitt Pierce and nobody sent me except myself when I walked out the house this morning and looked up and saw smoke. I'm happy to gas that bug and you can be on your way to Texas. Although I have to say you're taking a peculiar strange route. Don't try that line on me. Listen, he said, his palms stretched out before him as if this would prove him harmless. Pretty much everything you've said to me, I don't understand. But you seem to be in a rough patch and I'm not talking about being out of gas. She had her arms not crossed, but wrapped around her chest, hugging herself. She looked at him. A piece of her hair fell onto her forehead just above her eyes. Then looked away and walked to the car with her back to him, paused and walked back to the fire, her head down now, studying the ground. She did this again, several more times after that. Hewitt did not move, watching her. Damaged, and no telling how far or deep that ran beyond what he already could see. Get the goddamn gas and get her moving. Maybe even tow the car down the hill if she'd let him. So he could keep his eye on her until the car was running and on its way, but he said, "What's your name?" She continued her walking that had become nearly nearly passive or restful some way he could not put his finger on, and with her face turned earthward said a word he could not understand. "I'm sorry," he said, "I pound iron, and my hearing's not what it could be. I didn't hear you." She stopped on her way toward the VW, so her back was to him. He could see her shoulder blades through the t-shirt, and he was swept with a sense of her fragility, even as she lifted her head, still turned away and said, Jessica, my name's Jessica. He thought she was trembling, but could not be sure. It was possible the fire was meager and her clothing not right for a night in the woods. But he had the sudden notion that it was not cold, but the speaking of her name, as if entrusting something she doubted to trust. And he thought of the ancients who feared revealing their true names. Some power lost or perhaps an uncertain vulnerability revealed that the bearer might not know, but the hearer certainly might. Hewitt said, Jessica, are you hungry? She turned then and looked at him without relaxing her grip on herself. I'm just fine, she said. Well, he said, I'm not. I want some breakfast. What I was thinking was, why don't we tow your car down to the house so you don't have to worry about it, and we can fill it up with gas so you're all set to go, and then maybe you could sit down with me and eat some eggs and toast. How's that sound? For a moment, she looked like any other girl and was maybe a bit more than pretty, and then the shade passed over her face again, and she said, that's kind of you. But I think I truly need to get traveling on. I think I got all turned around. But you should be careful what you eat. They put whatever they want in just about anything. You was fascinated. The eggs come from an old fart of a neighbor who most likely would agree with you. And the bread's baked fresh every day in the village by a couple women I've known all my life. The loaf in the bread box may be a little stale, but it makes good toast. Jessica? I went through an awful, hard, terrible time in my life some years back, and much of it's still with me. But every now and then you have to trust somebody. Trust me if you want or not. But I'd hate to see you drive off hungry. The truth is, I'd be happy to have some company for breakfast. Let's get your car off this mountain and figure it out from there. Do you have a cell phone? I'm sorry, but I don't. There's a, roti- there's a rotary phone at the house. You're welcome to use it. You don't run up a bill the length of my arm. Don't you be getting a cell phone. I'm serious as death, you hear me? I never gave a thought to one. Anyways, what I hear is they don't work around here. Is that right? He shrugged. What I hear? You he was a little stunned with all this. He'd come up expecting a quick rescue and being sworn to silence by the children of someone he most likely knew and her nipples were clear and dark through the thin shirt even as the morning was warming through the trees. She said, Can I ask two questions? Only two? He grinned. She did not smile back, just waited. All right, shoot. She said, I got rid of that gun a long time ago. He digested this and then said, I meant go on and ask your questions. What happened to you? Well, fuck it, he'd open that door. It's a bit of a long tail. She nodded as if this was enough. She said, why on earth do you try to hurt iron? Does that stop you from hurting something else? He wanted to ask if that was one question or two, but simply said, I'm a blacksmith. I think I told you I pound iron. After it's heated, the iron reacts in surprising ways. When it's right, Beauty comes from it, and thought, shut up now. She said, but we all have iron inside us. Yes, he said, we are stardust, thinking if she doesn't want breakfast, that's probably a good thing. She said, Hewitt, tell me again I can trust you. You can trust me. She turned again and resumed her pacing between car and now dead fire, And he stood waiting, wanting to speak, but with no idea what to say. She was so intent, it seemed she was reading the ground. Messages for her to decipher, or perhaps easily read. He could not say, but knew both possibilities were congruent with this wild, wild life. He'd done the same, more times than he could count. He'd stood in a snowstorm with bitter wind out of the northwest and screamed a name into the night. Or on his knees, forehead striking the ground over and over, wanting to push his head down into the very earth. Both small events of an endless mosaic that was not so much behind him as one he now rode as a silent, steady river he'd bled into and merged with. There came now the image of a jam jar dropped to explode on the bare plank pantry floor. So he did what he could. He fired up the the tractor and backed it around, then got down on his knees to wrap the chain around the rear axle and snug it tight. She stopped pacing and was watching. He went the closest he'd been to her and said, because we're going downhill, you've got to keep the tension. Just keep pumping the brake and make sure you watch out only the back. It's better to have the chain get tight and jerk you than have the car run into the back of the tractor. Do you understand? I'm lost, she said. Not stupid. Well, sit over breakfast with me and maybe we can figure out where you got turned around. Her mouth tightened, lips pressed, as if trying to learn if she was being led or not. Then she said, I'll watch you eat. But it. what is it? Stop staring at my boobs, okay? Why don't you get in your car, he said. So, <clears throat> that's at meeting Jessica, who ends up hanging around. They're both kind of damaged souls. He just has a good 20 years on her and a little more experience about how to deal with those sort of things. <coughs> In the meanwhile, he learns that the woman who broke his heart about 25 years ago, um, 23, his husband has just died. He's been kind of keeping tabs on her from a distance, um, and when he learns this, he doesn't—he doesn't quite know what to do, but. Um, he talks with his friend Walter, who I wish I could read that part to you because I like walter he 's one of my favorite characters, but Walter basically says, "You know, I know you, Hewitt, and you know you, you just you, you, you have to go see her you, don't, you know you don 't have any choice, and that 's what you 're going to do now I need to back up and explain here too that Hewitt lost his driver 's license many, many years ago because um after this woman broke up with him, he went through a, as as I, alluded to a, a pretty bad period where, he was you know blackout drinking and driving and um, he kept getting busted and uh, he finally hit a point where, you know he was in court one more time and things kicked into gear and the old family attorney stood up and he just he tugged him down by the sleeve and he walked up to the. To the judge and he pulled out his wallet and handed over his license and said, you know, I expect you want this. And that was pretty much the end of it. And he never, he basically never bothered to try to find out how long, you know, he just, he used his tractor to get back and forth to the village and occasionally various friends would take him to get things that he needed. But he pretty much was set up with uh, everything he needed was at home. But now this woman, Emily, has uh, re-entered his life. Um, Jessica's been around for a few weeks. They've kind of hit this, this, this balance, this um, very, very close but very clearly defined platonic relationship. Um, Walter has offered the use of his uh, 1958 Thunderbird, which had belonged to his grandfather. Um, Walter's argument being, no one but a citizen drives a car like that. As long as you, you know, pay attention, you're not going to get pulled over. No, you know, you're not going to have any problems. And Walter says, you know, uh, Hewitt says to him, he said, well, you know, what do you, what do I do if, you know, if, if that does happen? And I mean, what, you know, what, what are you, what are you going to say? And, Walter says, I'm going to tell him you stole the car. Anyway, <clears throat> so he's getting ready to leave on this trip. This is a shorter piece. Um, <clears throat> he's, he's, he's in the middle of a job. Um, and Hewitt does, Hewitt does the kind of iron work where he can do three or four jobs a year and live comfortably on it. Um, of course, he's living on the old family homestead, so he doesn't have that, those sort of expenses, and he lives very simply. Um, but it's very high-end ironwork. He's, a, he's, a, he's an artist. He's not a, not a um, tinkerer. So he's got this job that's due. <coughs> in the morning, he left a message for the man in Pomfret. There had been a death in the family but the gates would be completed and installed no later than mid-July. Jessica hiked up the hill and cleared away the branches from the VW. I'm not going to tell you that part. And they drove to Hanover, where he left his one summer sport coat with the two-day dry cleaners, along with a pair of slacks and two dress shirts to be pressed. He bought new socks. With the feeling he was over-preparing, he suspected he'd wear only his usual Levi or Carhartt jeans and T-shirts. But there was a faint sense, not fantasy so much as image, of Emily consenting to be taken to dinner. He also took Jessica to the co-op and bought a sack of groceries, things she picked out that she'd need. Driving back, Jessica broke his contemplation, his building apprehension. Can I tell you a story? You've got several days to scare the shit out of yourself. Let me tell you about this man I met. He glanced at her. She was watching him and did not take her eyes away. She'd done this before and it was impressive but disconcerting. As much to get her eyes back on the road as for any illumination she might offer, he said, Is this somebody I might know? but she was peering ahead again and didn't pause for him. She said it was last winter. I tried to stay pretty far south in winter, but somehow I landed in Norfolk, Virginia. I was down along the waterfront, away from the harbor, but where the river there, the James, comes down. I found a little patch of woods behind some kind of factory. A strip of woods where nobody had bothered to put up a fence. And the building hid the woods from the main road. So you could camp out and risk a fire. I'd been there about a week. And was trying to figure out how to trade food stamps I'd gotten hold of for some cash. The stores are hip to you. You can't get any real money back. Not to speak of. Some coins. The rest of your change is always food stamps. Which is good if you're hungry but useless to buy gas. Which was what I wanted to get the fuck south from there. I mean, it was cold. Rain and wind off the ocean and ice over everything. And sailors everywhere. Tell you the truth, it was the only time I ever thought about selling my ass. A couple tricks would have taken me all the way to Florida. So one night I found a safe place to park and was slipping around that building and getting close to the woods. I had my sleeping bag under my arm and all of a sudden I saw a campfire down there. The woods were puny and I was halfway across the parking lot and I knew whoever was there was watching out too and so it seemed best to just march right in. So I did. And there was a man, an old man, with about 20 layers of clothes on and a rabbit or a squirrel or maybe even a cat roasting over the fire with thick gray waves of hair down onto his shoulders and a beard the same color stained and stuck together but even in that pale light, he had the most lovely yellow cat's eyes I'd ever saw on a person. And he called out for me to come on next to the fire. I kind of stomped in and threw my sleeping bag down and told him this is my spot, and he'd better scram before I kicked his ass. But he just smiled at me and told me there was room for both of us. Then, goddamn, he pulled a switch knife from his pocket but didn't open it and tossed it over, all the time looking at me. I didn't move. That thing was right up against my foot. My old razor, no matter how fast I was, was no match for that. Then he stretched out his right leg and dug into his trousers and came out with a regular old Barlow jackknife and held it up. Told me he'd need that back when the meat was cooked, but that was the end of what he had. He laughed and said, Go on and kill me now, girl. I told him I expected he'd showed me maybe half of what he had, and he nodded and said, Ain't half enough. So I tossed his mess back to him. At that point, it was clear if he was going to kill me, he could do it. He kept grinning at me, and those yellow eyes was lit up like candles, the sort of crinkled eyes and smile that you flat have no choice but to trust. She went on. He ate that meat, whatever it was. Then we shared some southern comfort, and he told me his story. Damn, I can still see his face. It's all stories, isn't it, Hewitt? He nodded, watching her intent on driving and her telling now, and said, go on. He was in the war, you know, the Second World War, and married to the woman he loved. He spent three years of that war living because of her. I guess he was also lucky, but the way he told it, it was waiting to get home to her that kept him alive. And you know what? The war ended and he came home. He said he was in the big parade in New York City. The next day he took the train home to Chicago. And he walked in, and she was still the most beautiful woman he'd ever seen, just like he remembered her. But she had a baby, a little boy, not even a year old. And he freaked. She tried to explain about how it happened, but nothing mattered, because what he thought was keeping him alive hadn't been enough somehow for her. So he left. He told me some of how he spent the years since. None of it pretty. But you know what, Hewitt? You know how he ended it? Hewitt was feeling sick to his stomach. He just waited. He said he couldn't forgive her, but he couldn't let her go either. He said he'd have done as well to die in the war, but for one thing. The best he knew she was still out there somewhere. And it didn't matter if she knew it or not. What mattered was that he did. And he believed because he did, there had to be some way she knew it too. That he'd never betrayed her. That until his dying day, he'd be true to her. He said he knew he should have gone back and let things be as they were. He understood all she needed or wanted was solace. Someone to quiet her fearful heart. And the boy wasn't the fault of anything except life itself. But by the time he learned that, it was too late. He sat across that fire from me and drank the liquor, and his eyes burnt into mine, and said that until he was cold, she would live inside him always. He told me that he knew he was a fool, but had no choice, because fool is just what's in the eyes of other people. And he laughed and poured a little of the booze on the fire, so blue flames jumped. And then he was serious and handed me back the bottle and thanked me for listening to him and began to roll up in his blankets. I asked him his name. He said it didn't matter. All that mattered was he prayed he would be dead soon and released. She's an old woman now, he said, probably with grandchildren doting on her or ignoring her as the world works. But I'm just a crummy old bum and the last thing she'd ever want to know about so let me die, he said. He lifted his head from the blankets and looked at me and said, it's an awful way to live. Then he settled back down and within five minutes he was sleeping peaceful as if he was beside her. Once he was good and asleep I got my sleeping bag and went back to the bug. The needle showed there was no gas but I drove maybe 10 miles and then stopped at an all-night gas station and then went in with my handful of food stamps. It was late. There was a kid behind the counter. I gathered up maybe $10 worth of food, and while he's ringing it up, <coughs> and while he was ringing him up, I told him a story about how I had to get somewhere that night and needed gas for the car and spread out what was near 100 bucks of food stamps. And he came out and filled the bug and checked the oil and shit. And I was thanking him, and as I was thanking him, he handed me back the food stamps. But as, as I was getting into the car, he ran his hand real slow down, down over my ass between my legs. I gently pushed him away. I gently pushed away down into the car and started it, although the driver's side window was open and he had both hands on the door frame. So I looked up at him and asked him to kiss me. I already had the car in gear. So he leaned in like I knew he would, and I slammed my foot on the gas, and it was gone. They'd come all the way back and were idling in the farmyard. It was dripping hot in the car, and neither of them could look at each other. Finally, Jessica said, I always overdo it, don't I? Now you had looked at her. He did that for a long moment. Then said, I wouldn't say that. No, I would not say that at all. Kiss my ass, she said, and got out of the car and walked toward the house. He watched her go. I'm going to go on just a little bit more because this is the the part that is fun. Three days later, the Thunderbird was washed and waxed, the white walls scrubbed the chrome polished like so much funhouse mirror. Jesus, Walter, why don't you just paint Notice Me on the trunk? Walter shook his head. I fear for you, man. I truly do. This baby is creamy. You're going to get a lot of looks, but only a citizen maintains a car like this. Only a citizen takes it out on the road. Unless you do something really stupid, the cops will leave you be except maybe to cruise up and pass slow as they take it in, maybe give you a wave. But remember, it's a friendly wave. Smile and wave back. It comes with the territory. All you really have to worry about is the random accident that's completely beyond your control. Even there, the odds are low. People pay attention to a car like this. Nobody wants to get too close. That's supposed to be reassuring, right? Sure, look at me. This is another part of Walter you don't know about, but you'll figure it out. Sure, look at me. Just pretend you've got five pounds shrink-wrapped in the trunk and drive carefully, but not not too carefully. I generally run about four miles over the speed limit. Never had a problem. Okay, but say I do, Walter laughed. I'll just tell him you stole it. Thanks, man. No, seriously, don't sweat it. I loaned you the car. I have no idea you don't have a driver's license. I just thought you were one of those green weenies that go everywhere by bike. You was quiet a moment, looking at the car. You know, I appreciate this. What are you doing with your little urchin while off on this quest? Leaving her in your care? Uh, I'm serious. The official story is she's the daughter of an old friend of mine who's going through a rough patch. Beyond that, she's house-sitting for me while I'm out of town on business. That's the story. And I think she'll be okay, but I can't say for sure. I don't think she'd hurt herself, and I think, without her exactly telling me, that she's sort of looking forward to some time alone. She's stocked with food. She should be okay. But I'd appreciate it if you could check on her a couple of times. Your Jeep's still running? Walter looked at him at the enormous stupidity of the question. had said, So if you could swing by, and if you see any strange cars here, I'd appreciate it if you came in like gas on a fire. She knows people all over the place, and I'd better a fair amount of them aren't exactly who I'd want hanging around. There's also the fact that she really doesn't have a clue about my dad. She's seen the paintings, but that's about it. I haven't talked about him to her but I could see her thinking she was doing me a favor if some slick fuck showed up with a wad of cash. All I'm doing these days is tending my tomato plants. I'll drop by. She seems like a good shit. Hewitt nodded. Then he said, Walter, what is it, worried man? It's just, well, try to leave her be. I mean, there's times when she's pretty fragile and scared of people, but wants to be comforted, I guess. Hewitt, what are you trying to say to me? Walter's eyes bright and hard. Hewitt paused. Nothing, man. Walter said, go say your goodbyes. You're wasting a pretty day. Already done. She settled in, cooking up some kind of lentil gruel. I was to go back in there, she'd think I was hovering. Good, then go. I'll walk up to the house and see if she'll give me a lift home. I could do that. Hewitt. All right. Thanks, Walter. It's nothing. Oh, one thing. On the highway, keep the top up. That's what the serious boys do. Keeps the sun from fading the leather. But if you get that woman to go for a ride, put it down, there's nothing like it. So it's a story, it's a story, you know, I I said this earlier to one of you writers. (coughs) Um, It's a story about, uh, uh, it's largely set in 1998, um, with a serious level of backstory that takes place in 1976, which is when Hewitt and this woman, Emily, were involved for a couple of years. Um, It also is a story of Hewitt's father and, who was a a painter of of some note and recognition who um, lost his first wife and daughter in a fire in New York um, just after World War II um, and slowly regained his ground and um, met the woman who's Hewitt's mother um, and Sort of came back to life and came back to Vermont to the old farm family homestead that had been in the family for many years um, so it's it's it 's a story about it's a story about it 's uh, it, sort of a story about two two different love stories over two different time periods they, they sort of overlap and um A lot of it's about how the generations tend to repeat themselves, and yet they're different each time. The details are different. But um, I've seen this in my own family, and I've seen it in other families, and I think it's an interesting thing. I can't explain it, but I find it fascinating and um, to write about that sort of thing. So that's sort of what this this book is all about. It's really about this one summer where Hewitt is trying to woo back this woman that he loved and um, also trying to help this young woman who he sort of develops a father-daughter relationship with which is something he's never had. Um, And it's also about a, a man who is seriously disconnected from the world Learning how to reengage with people, um, so that's my my gloss on that. And now we can go to the dread questions and answers.